Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Mahilius Rockney, and today I'm very happy to report that I have my good friend J.A. Velasco sitting opposite me. Hi, J. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me. Wow. <laughs> so measured. I'm getting I'm getting professional for this. Yeah, thing, you are, yeah. Uh, this, I mean, this, this is my this third is... I feel like I'm like 15 years at the BBC. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. My email is on my website. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> i'm really good thank you yeah uh so today we're going to be talking or we're going to be talking with uh yes. professor john barton author of the history of the bible the book and its faiths uh how did you find the book i actually liked i mean to be fair i thought it's it's definitely a challenging read mm. i you know you know how it is so you pick up a book at uh, at the bookshop and then at the back says that you can't put this down but the truth <laughs> is i could put this one down that's because it's really heavy, but it, is, yeah. it, it was fascinating. Yeah, it's a proper uh, academic critical study, isn't it? It is, yeah. I, I mean, this is sort of, you know, an academic trying to write for a broader audience. Mm. So you can just imagine how different, you know, the, the, the other kind of uh, his corpus as it is. Right. is. Um, but definitely, I, I really, I mean, I learned a lot as we will discuss later. Um, yeah. I have my reservations right. about it. Oh, yes. yeah. Well, it brought out some fascinating uh, yeah. issues, didn't it? Yes. Yes, it did. So, yeah. So today we'll be talking with uh, Professor John Barton. We'll be talking about issues concerning the authorship of the Bible, how the Bible was mm -hmm. put together. We'll be talking about the way we interact with the Bible in the modern day and how present concerns might lead us to read things into the Bible that perhaps were not intended in the very beginning. Very controversial things, very difficult yeah, topics. Yeah, yeah, very difficult stuff. Uh, okay, uh, before we begin, just some uh, minor technical points. Uh, our conversation with uh, Professor Barton took place over the phone, and unfortunately the phone line dropped at some point. So at around minute 13, our conversation will abruptly come to an end, and then it will equally abruptly begin anew. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, let you know about that and also to apologize for this very odd sound that would repeatedly come through the episode but i'm sure you won't notice it because of the the, the beautiful conversation and uh, indeed our sonorous voices indeed so enough babbling um yes. let's uh, let's get to the interview with professor john barton Please expand. I'm Helios Rockney, and today I have with me on the podcast Professor John Barton. Professor Barton, thank you very much for being here. Hey, Why don't we get started then? Uh, Professor Barton, one of the things that really struck me uh, about your book was that it really goes against what the average person thinks about the Bible, you know, as a single book that begins with creation and ends with judgment and redemption. In your book, you write that this wasn't always the case. Rather, the Bible is a compilation of texts of which we know little about in terms of their date and authorship. And I guess uh, our first question is just why is that, despite its history, that we read the Bible as a single text? Well, uh, because, of course, the books all came together and formed a canon, a, a list of official books, both in Judaism for the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and in Christianity for the whole Bible, including the New Testament. And people gradually stopped seeing it as a collection of books. We still talk about the books of the Bible, but I, I think people don't make that real to themselves by thinking this really is another book 
it's almost as though one would take all the plays of Shakespeare individually and then bind them up in the works of Shakespeare and then stop remembering that they are individual plays and start seeing them as a kind of continuum. Now, we don't do that with Shakespeare, but we do do it with the Bible. And it does produce this rather misleading impression that we're dealing with a monolithic work with a single meaning. And as you say, people have traditionally read it as creation to judgment, creation of the world to the end of the world, in the book of Revelation at the end. Um, and uh, that is a possible way of reading it once you've got it collected together. But the actual collection took place over a long period of time and wasn't driven by that kind of agenda in the first place. Fantastic. And, um, Professor, in your what we read in, in your fascinating book is... Um, the idea that the Old Testament can be uh, was read through the uh, lens of uh, the New Testament, and I was wondering, uh, perhaps, if we, in the same way, sort of felt guilty of reading the Bible today through the lenses of modern organized religion rather than individual pieces of text, as it is. Well, I think that is probably true that um, the church, the Bible, is read as the church's book, as it were. Uh, and sometimes that's an accurate portrayal of it, but sometimes it misses some of the original meanings. So I think that uh, we sometimes lump it all together, as it were, and uh, don't see the individuality of the different parts. Of course, it's difficult to know precisely when sort of the original meaning was going and when the original meaning was sort of um, obfuscated by of, uh, interpretation and readings of authority. Yes, I mean, I tried in the book to outline what we know or think we know about when the different books were written, and it's very diverse. I'm suggesting that the Hebrew Bible came about between about the 8th and the 2nd centuries BCE. The New Testament, all within the 1st century uh, BCE, uh, more or less, um, and uh, one can form ideas about how it all got written uh, within that kind of time frame. Right. And just continuing on this line of the difficulty of understanding exactly of or disentangling original meaning from presently sort of understood meaning, you also discussed the difficulties with translating the Bible. Uh, and one of the difficulties that you often repeat comes from the fact that we might be what we read might not be consistent with our current moral, cultural, or social milieu. It seems to me that there is a bit of a tension here, right? Because on the one hand, we want to know what the Bible originally meant, and on the other hand, we find ourselves conflicted with its original meaning. That, that That's right. I mean, the trouble is that we read it in the light of our own concerns, our own ethical concerns, for example. And we tend to go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this particular issue? And there are ethical issues. I mean, take the whole ecological debate, on which the Bible has actually very little to say because people weren't aware of those sorts of issues at the time when it was being written. So that uh, we inevitably have to, to some extent to read back our own concerns into the text. On the other hand, which makes it even more complicated, some of the concerns we have in modern ethics do derive from biblical sources. 
So there's a kind of feedback going on between the original meaning of the Bible and what we read into it. And I tried to disentangle some of that in, in my book and to show how we have read our own concerns into the book, but nonetheless our own concerns partly derive from it. It's part of this thing that I try to lay out in the last chapter, where the Bible and Christian or Jewish belief and faith overlap, but are not coterminous. So there's a whole area where what Christians believe and what the Bible teaches overlap, but there are areas where the Bible talks about things that are not much of a current concern at all, and there are current concerns that aren't represented very much within the Bible. Yeah. That seems to me that's more accurate than trying to see our own modern concerns as just a kind of reading off of what's there in the Bible. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Professor, a recurring theme in your book uh, deals with the uncertainty surrounding the authorship of certain biblical books. However, many major cultural landmarks are prisoner of the same issue. I can think, as you were mentioning earlier, Shakespeare. I can think of Shakespeare. I can think of uh, Homer as well. Uh, it makes one wonder if Shakespeare's plays would be less significant if they, in the end, are discovered to have been written by someone other than Shakespeare. Do you think this problem is more serious for the Bible than it's uh, than it is for a literary text, say, like the Iliad or Macbeth? And if yes, uh, in which way would be more? Yeah. I think it's a similar issue, in a way, um, because um, one is dealing with books that, in some cases, claim a certain authorship, so that there are letters supposedly by Paul in the New Testament. An example would be Ephesians, which most critical scholars think is not really by Paul at all, but is falsely attributed to it. Now, that's in the same category as a play falsely attributed to Shakespeare. One can still find, uh, in the Shakespeare case, the same aesthetic value, perhaps, even if it isn't by Shakespeare. And we don't then worry too much about the authorship, I suppose. But in the case of the Pauline letters, um, if they make claims, namely to be by Paul, which aren't true, then we start to say to ourselves, is this letter in any sense authentic? Uh, can, a, can a letter which makes a false claim uh, at the same time be of huge religious and spiritual value? Now, the majority of people who read Ephesians find it to be profound and important. And I think I'm not terribly worried by the news that it may not be by Paul, but it probably ought to give us pause, because it does actually make the claim to be by Paul. In a sense, a spurious Shakespeare play is often not claiming within its own text to be by Shakespeare. Yeah, just, sorry, please continue. Yeah, carry on. Just a question on this problem of authorship. If If it were to become common currency that Ephesians is probably not by Paul, do you think it would be a prudent step to reconsider its place in the Bible? I mean, but given how much time we've spent reading it as part of the Bible, maybe that would be too difficult. I mean, how would one approach the problem of authorship in terms of I how know. the Bible is constituted? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, it doesn't arise, for example, with most of the books of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, which on the whole don't make any particular claims to authorship. I mean, the, the, the five books of Moses, as we call them, nowhere say this book is by Moses. Hmm. So it only arises really in a few cases, in the, in, mainly in the case of the Pauline letters. But 
nevertheless, um, I think that biblical scholars who don't think that Ephesians or perhaps also Second Thessalonians, for example, is actually by Paul, do probably give it less importance in their thinking than the letters they think really are by Paul. So there is a kind of operative principle of an effective canon, which is the books that are genuinely taken seriously. Um, and that differs from person to person in practice and from uh, one kind of church to another too. So, for example, the Protestant churches have tended to very much foreground and emphasize Paul's letters, where the Catholic Church has tended more to foreground and emphasize the gospel. This is only a matter of degree, but it does operate in some ways. So there is a kind of sliding scale. And I think biblical scholars who are doubtful about the authenticity of some Pauline letters probably move them towards the far end of their sliding scale in a way that ordinary believers don't. I see. And of course, in your book, you also mention the work of Spinoza, who who showed or tried to show that the five books of Moses were probably not written by Moses, and that caused a general uproar. That's right, it did. Uh, one of the things that got him expelled from the synagogue um, for saying such things. Um, there were hints, even in the Middle Ages, that people had noticed that there were things in the Pentateuch that really didn't belong in the time of Moses. Um, but they tended not to do much to develop those ideas because they were thought to be, you know, potentially heretical, as it were. And it really is with Spinoza that this redating and reauthoring of the physical books begins in earnest and has come through to our own day. Right. And just c continuing on this question of authority and scriptures, uh, one of your one of the points in your book is that uh, sometimes older manuscripts carry greater authority because they were supposed to have been written nearer to the time of the event that they narrate. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we recently read this fascinating article on the controversy surrounding the famous papyrologist Dirk Obink. Oh, yes. Yeah, and he was rumoured to have a, a first-century manuscript of the Gospel of Mark in his possession. Yeah. And we were just wondering, in what way does it really matter? How would it change things that if a text can be proved to be closer to the time of Christ? Well, of course... Um Earliness doesn't prove truthfulness necessarily, um, but if we we found a, a, a version, I mean, if this is true, if we found a version of the Gospel of Mark that genuinely does go back to the first century, that would be earlier than any of our other manuscript evidence, and it would show that Mark was already in circulation at that period. Now, there's still, of course, a big gap between any possible date for Mark and the actual life and doings of Jesus and sayings of Jesus. Um, and there's plenty of room for falsification to creep in. But nevertheless, I think we'd be uh, disposed to think that there was something serious about it if we did find a, a manuscript of Mark that early. So I, I think, you know, earliness of manuscripts is one important criterion for the manuscript being some... Sorry, we got cut off there. Yeah, sorry. Don't know uh, what happened. Yeah, must have just been the line. Right. Uh, so, uh, talking about the future of the Bible, Professor, obviously now with new technological implements, artificial intelligence and uh, 
algorithmic study of all the manuscripts and knowledge that there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps, uh, pieces of papyri out there that haven't been analyzed. Would future discoveries, say, of never-before-read manuscripts, uh, in your opinion, pose a challenge to modern churches that have been criticized, of course, one of one of the reasons they've been criticized recently is for the lack of um, flexibility or perhaps the rigidity in terms of their moral sort of code of conduct. If we were to find a very old manuscript, would you think it would open certain questions that we haven't asked yet? Well, if it was a manuscript, just to take an example, that contained or purported to contain the teachings of Jesus, then it would obviously be of great interest to people in the churches. And this is the case when the Gospel of Thomas was discovered in right. Egypt. Mm. Um, and that does contain some sayings of Jesus that aren't in the canonical Gospels. But then, of course, immediately the same question arises as for the biblical books. How old is the manuscript? How old is the underlying text? Is, it, is, it, is the text the same date as the manuscript? Or is it a late, manu- a late copy? Um, how uh, authentic is the material? So that just as with the sayings in the Gospels, you can ask, not does the Gospel tell us that Jesus said this, but did Jesus really say it? Is it plausible that he could have said it? Is a, can we apply any criteria to decide? And just those same issues would arise with a newly discovered Gospel, shall we say. On the other hand, if many people were satisfied that it was authentic, and that the sayings of Jesus in it really were real, and they contradicted things in the Gospels, then I think we would have to readjust our views. Right. I don't, I don't think we could say, well, it's not in the Bible, so I'm not worried. Yeah, in your book you made the distinction between canon and scripture, which is yes. a distinction that I was never aware of. And it, um, I just thought of it now as you were talking, because I imagine a newly discovered text might be accepted as scripture, but it perhaps would be more difficult for it to be accepted as canon. I think that's right. I mean, it would be difficult for us to put it in the canon now, which has been closed for so long. Um, but the question would arise, you know, do we adjust our view of Jesus or the early church or whatever in the light of this new piece of evidence? Right. Um, or, or do we say, well, we only follow what's in the Bible? And again, the, the, the most biblical scholars would say the first of those that we have to, if we get, we have new evidence, we have to allow for it, whether it's in the Bible or not. Um, but that might be unpalatable to some Christian believers, of course. Yeah. So it would be a, it would be a tricky manoeuvre, if I can put it that way. Right. Just a yeah, a general question: Is there much communication between biblical scholars and uh, church authorities, religious authorities? Do you, is there a um, yeah? Is there is there a communication? Do you impact each other? Well, not as much as we ought to, I think. Hmm. Um, what happens is that all church leaders in the mainstream churches are trained in critical biblical scholarship because they learn it mm. during during their theological training. But very often, once they're in positions of leadership in the church and once they have to preach to congregations, they tend at best to fudge what they know and at worst actually to contradict <laughs> what they really know. Right. So you won't hear many sermons saying, there might be elements in the Gospels that are legendary, for fear that would scandalize people. And then the, the person who constantly refuses to say that kind of thing 
then rather internalizes the position and forgets what they were taught. So my impression is that um, critical scholarship doesn't impact church leaders as much as I think it ought to. Um, equally, it may be true that critical scholars like myself don't attend enough to what the needs are in the churches for clear moral and religious teaching and are inclined to play games with the text which ignore how seriously the average Christian takes it. So there, there is, there's a certain amount of lack of communication across that divide, I think. I see, yeah. And just uh, going on from this uh, this uh, need of the Bible as imparting moral instruction, you, one of the main arguments of your book is that there isn't this one-to-one relationship between uh, doctrine and text. Yeah. And again, that was a, to me at least, to my uh, layman mind of how the Bible is for believers, that was a very big claim. Uh, I always thought of the Bible as this this grounding text. And I wonder, given your reading of the Bible, what exactly the role of the Bible is for Christianity and Judaism, because you maintain that it's still central to them, but you exclude certain possibilities. Yes, that's a very fair question. Um, the, um, the Bible doesn't always give clear rulings on things. I mean, for example, you might say, well, what does the Bible help? How does the Bible help us in talking about modern slavery? Well, the problem is that in both Old and New Testaments, the institution of slavery is taken for granted and not treated as in itself a bad thing. Now there, we, we surely find ourselves at odds with what the Bible is telling us. Mm-hmm. But then we can say, uh, in a broader perspective, if you look at the things that the New Testament particularly says about human dignity and human freedom, and indeed the things that the Old Testament says about those issues, if you think them through, they are actually incompatible with the institution of slavery. So the material, the Bible contains material for its own critique, in a sense, um, where you can say, well, taking the overall trajectory of the material in the Bible, it doesn't encourage slavery, though there are individual passages that, that do that do allow it. And that's a complicated position, but I think that's how it works. Um, Professor, I would like to... Moving on, I would like to discuss your section on divine inspiration. In the conclusion of your book, uh, you express your doubts as talking to the utility of the concept of divine inspiration as a way to support the position that everything in the Bible is true. Um, we read, for example, that the concept of divine inspiration is rarely mentioned in the Bible. And this really struck me as odd that a text that claims to be the word of God does not state that it is divine inspired and I was wondering whether if, why might be was it obvious to them that it was divine inspired or perhaps it was not as much a concern for them as it is for us No, well I mean for one thing the Bible doesn't claim to be the word of God, Christians and Jews have claimed that the Bible is the word of God but within the Bible itself there are only very certain number of passages that say this is the word of the Lord. You find it in the prophets. But you never find the book of Proverbs described in the Bible as mm. the word of God. That's a, a generalizing claim that Christians have made about the Bible. Um, 
Now, uh, there are, again, passages in the Bible which are said to come from God, to be divinely inspired, but they're not very numerous. And in general, I think it's true to say that, you know, rather than saying that the Bible as the Word of God is the foundation of Christianity, one should rather say that the Christian faith is the foundation of the Bible. Right. Uh, that that's where the Bible derives, it derives from Jews and Christians reflecting on what they've come to believe. And one has to remember, of course, that for the writers of the New Testament, there was as yet no New Testament. So that when Paul is writing to his churches, he can't appeal to the Gospels because the Gospels didn't yet exist. Right. Um, so the faith must be something that isn't tied up with and totally dependent on these particular texts. It must have an existence apart from the text. Now that said, these texts are an enormous resource for Christians as they are for Jews, uh, coming from the origins of the, both faiths. Right. So they have a certain importance and dignity and profundity. But they're not the word of God in the sense that as soon as we open the book, we're immediately addressed in our present concerns by the text our I like. Um, this is this is very interesting because um, speaking to friends who are priests and uh, nuns, uh, there is always a notion of the calling um, yeah. that they receive, and often involved a Bible. And I remember a, a, a particular friend um, mentioning to me how one day he opened the Bible and. Um, one sentence that he read had something to do with follow me and that was his calling and uh, and it's probably yeah. how often this is the case and it, it's very interesting for given the discussion that we're having um, so This is true, uh, many people do find this and you can read a text, I mean I read some of the Bible every day and sometimes a phrase will leap out at you and say, and say to you this is what you should be doing this moment doesn't right. happen very often, but it does occasionally. Right. And the only thing is, I think, it can happen with other texts too, actually. Um, it's just a, just a biblical phenomenon. Uh, right. You might read a Christian writer and suddenly feel, gosh, I really must take that seriously. So, I don't think, but it is true that many people's sense of vocation does derive from an encounter with a particular biblical verse. Uh, and of course, this is true famously of St. Augustine. Yes who suddenly picked up the book and, as it were, fell open at a particular spot, and he felt called by the the verse he read. All great texts have this ability to suddenly impact you and make you feel that you're being spoken to directly. And the Bible does it to a great extent, which is, a, I think, a, you know, an index to how profound much of the Bible is. Right. Uh, just going back to the the compilation of the Bible, the writing of the Bible. I'm just uh, curious, is the concept of divine inspiration a common concept that one finds when one reads archaic, Aramaic, Hebrew uh, manuscripts, or is it uh, generally rare? I think it's pretty rare. Um, and, I mean, even within the New Testament, there's only one place that actually refers to okay. Scripture being directly inspired. Though Paul says that much of the Old Testament was written for our benefit, he, as he puts it, just as implies that. Um, but an awful lot of ancient texts don't don't make any claims to be divinely inspired at all. Um, 
just to go more precisely into your your argument against divine inspiration, because you're not very keen on it as a way of explaining, uh, or as a way of granting truth to the text. No. Um, as I was reading your book, I was sort of taking on the persona of a conservative Christian, and I, you know, I'm thinking I want scripture to ground my current religious practices. And I mean, assuming I, let's say I've read your book and I'm convinced by your argument, you know, I still want to maintain this position, and I, I want to say that the Bible is divinely inspired, so as to give it truth. Uh, I was wondering, you know, what would you say to this position? Well, um, I'm directly contradicting it in the sense that I'm saying the Bible isn't the foundation, the absolute foundation of all Christian life and belief. Um, but um, that isn't to say that um, that the Bible is useless. I mean, it's the conservative Christian position operates with an a direct either or. Either the Bible is totally inspired, and my main resource for life, or it's not worth anything at all. And I, what I'm trying to say is that the truth lies between those extremes. Um, the Bible is important, uh, but not um, utterly crucial in the way that the traditional believer thinks it is. Um, yeah, and fact- I, I come back again to, you know, what really inspires the all Christian believers, traditional or more liberal, is some kind of sense of what the Christian faith is about and how it grasps you and how you have to follow Christ. Um, and that's only partly grounded in the Bible. Now, you can read the Bible to feed that faith, uh, and people do that to a greater or lesser extent, but the Bible is not the direct inspiration of people's faith. And not many people come to faith by reading the Bible. They normally come to faith by catching it from someone else, by seeing someone that impresses them who is a Christian, or by considering the claims that the Christian faith makes. And the Bible is part of that, but only part of it. That's very interesting, because I, uh, I find it difficult to conceive of this position, just because when you throw the Bible into doubt, don't you also throw into doubt the historical context that gave rise to this faith? Um, I don't see that. Um, I mean, the, the Bible is not... Uh, throwing it into doubt is the, is the phrase I take issue with. Okay. But um, there are things in the Bible that are probably not historically true, for example. Um but that doesn't mean that overall it gives a totally misleading impression. Um, you know, there are elements in the Gospels where you find things said that can't both be true. You know, I mean, for example, uh, an example I often quote, that the so-called cleansing of the temple when Jesus throws out the people trading in the temple. In John's Gospel, that's one of the first things he does in his ministry. In the other Gospels, it's one of the last things he does in his ministry. Now, Unless he did it twice, one or other of those is not strictly speaking true. But the impression of Jesus we get from it has been judged by generous Christians to be a reliable impression of Jesus. Right. And the detail is not so absolutely crucial. And St. Augustine, again, going back to him, says this, that there are differences between the Gospels, but they're not crucial to our picture of Jesus and of Christianity. If they were uh, 
if, if the picture of Jesus in the Gospels is totally misleading, then I see no reason why anybody should be a Christian at all. That's fascinating. Yeah. So the, the faith is sort of bound by the sort of distillation of the, the main mm. essence of the text. I think so, yeah. Right. Yeah, this, this reminds me of your analysis of uh, Jesus' treatment uh, of women, or his attitude towards women. And I thought that was a very interesting analysis that you gave, where you give different accounts of what he says about divorce and remarriage, but mm. overall the accounts show that he is favorable in res with respect to the protection of women in society. That's exactly what I was trying to argue, as you say. That's right. And that um, my, my concern in the modern debate is that everything functions turns on, did Jesus or did he not allow divorce right. as a kind of narrow issue. Yeah. But what it tends to ignore is the way he related to women in general and his desire to protect them from um, wrongdoing. Well, and that seems to me, it seems to me what we've got there is a, an overarching principle right. which may contradict the detailed ones. Yeah, and to take us back to the beginning of the conversation, it's because we're currently so interested in divorce and yes. marriage that we're just, we're reading into the text, our concerns. That, that's or what perhaps it seems to me. something like that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or, or one, you know, there is a danger of that. It's something to be on one's guard against. Of course, of course. Right, thank to you. Be aware yeah. of. As a last question to conclude the conversation, as a biblical scholar and also an Anglican priest, how do you reconcile, if there is any, cleavage between facts and faith? Well, um, I think that uh, faith is related to, but not totally dependent on fact, in that there is an element of a leap of faith that you have to, in the end, decide that you believe in God and that you believe in Jesus Christ. Um, and that doesn't depend on an accumulation of lots of discrete facts. It, it, it depends on a vision of, of how things are. Um, but uh, for example, I mean, in my ministry as as, as a priest, uh, I'm often preaching, and I try uh, to say things that are helpful to the congregation, not just challenging to them. Right. But I also try not to falsify what I believe as a biblical scholar. So I don't claim that all the sayings of Jesus are by Jesus if I really don't think they are. Um, I, I try to introduce an element of criticism. And I, I suppose I'm preached mainly to rather liberal congregations who are willing to hear that message. If I were faced with a very conservative evangelical congregation, I would have to be careful in how I phrase things of course. so as not to just cause needless and pointless offence. Um, and one has to ad adjust what one says to the hearers, but trying all the time not to falsify one's own beliefs in the process. Wonderful. Professor Barton, and thank you very much for taking part in this interview. Thank you. Hello and welcome back. That was our conversation with Professor John Barton. Uh, thank you very much again, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion. And as we said before, this is the... The moment that you and I discuss our discussion. The meta-bible. The meta-bible, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, so uh, you do want to start with something that you Yeah, think? so first of all, I really enjoyed the interview. Speaking with Professor Barton about his book oh, was lovely, a lovely opportunity. Yeah. 
so yeah, I guess what really stood out for me from the interview was the discussion concerning authorship. Right, yeah. And uh, this is something that we spoke about a lot yes. privately. So to take a small example, Professor Barton in his book writes that many scholars doubt that some of Paul's letters, such as Timothy 1 and 2 and Ephesians, were not actually written by Paul, but by followers of Paul, right? Because they sort of believed yep. in his doctrines. And they know this for a number of reasons, one of which is that they use different Greek. So like, it'd be like me having written something in the 19th century and someone yeah. writing it now, and we have different you styles of English. Yes. It would be strange to think the same yeah. person. And so this is, you know, briefly, this is the problem of... That's of actually a very good example. Thank uh, you very uh, much. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, and why does it matter if Paul did or didn't write these letters? Well, that's, that's the thing, actually. I mean... Uh, <laughs> Does it matter? It does. Of course it does matter. <laughs> okay, well, you tell us why well, it matters. Well, I think, I definitely think it does matter because, um, so in the, during the interview, I asked uh, about this stuff and he mentioned Shakespeare mm. uh, because obviously Shakespeare is one of all these, you know, cultural figures who is haunted by the problems of authorship. Did right. they really write that or not? So I want to tell you what I think about this. Mm. And I personally don't see myself reading Hamlet any differently if I knew Shakespeare didn't write them. Because, I mean, first of all, he's not even alive anyway. So, <laughs> and he wasn't, like, he hasn't been alive in a long time. Right. So uh, I think every sentence would have equal power. It generally would be just a subjective change. And like almost like petty uh, thing if, if you read something knowing that they didn't write it. Uh, right. But anyway, the point is... Um, I don't think it would it would definitely change at all. Everything would remain the same. Every story, every character would remain the same. Um, but when we're talking with about Paul and why I'm being more, you know, uh, unforgiving with this is because ironically, I know uh, we are talking about because we're talking about you know the foundation of thought of Christian faith. Yeah. And if these letters are illegitimate to say you know then that's that's how I would call them. Um, why are they part of the official canon? Uh, and I mean, you know what? You kind of would have expected the Holy Spirit to have done some, run some background checks or something. <laughs> I don't know. How to, yeah, you would have checked. You have you. You would have checked. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well. Right. Well, you say that Hamlet wouldn't change. It for you. wouldn't change. But okay. But let's but let's consider a, a recent example. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, a few years ago now mm. there was that whole media frenzy around the uh, the Salvatore Mundi uh, painting. The the lost uh, Leonardo. Yeah, the last Leonardo. Yeah. The last and yeah, lost yeah, yeah. Leonardo. Yeah. Uh, and you know, given the attention and the price, it was undoubtedly because the author, the painter of the painting, was yeah. Da Vinci that it caused such a stir. You know, it matters that it was Leonardo da Vinci and not uh, Lawrence da Vinci from uh, <laughs> from Vienna. Minsk. From Minsk, yeah. <laughs> I see what you mean, but but then again, look, I I still disagree with you because it might have affected the it might have affected the price of the painting, and I would understand if by today's standards it's very difficult to separate the painting itself from the pie, the price that is attached to it. Yeah. So mm. I think if Da Vinci painted that stuff or not, it definitely affects the price. Mm. But I mean, in a way, authorship doesn't really affect beauty the same way you know it affects truth 
me knowing that Da Vinci did not paint Salvatore Mundi might change, might, and like very, very like might, um, change my personal appreciation of the painting. But that's it. I mean, the effects of the truth, whether he painted it or not, remain within the limit of the canvas of that painting. What the Bible gave birth to, in a way, is very different. No one thinks about that. No one thinks about Da Vinci before you know when you're about to die. Mm. No one prays to Mona Lisa, or maybe someone too. But I actually I don't see it. Um, you you know, and unless you are an English literature professor, <laughs> I probably you don't think of Hamlet when you're you know about to die as well. I can see that happening more often. Someone thinking of Hamlet, like to be or not to be, and that's it. I can see that happening. Right. Yeah. But you know, it, my point is. Da Vinci is... Yeah, the Mona Lisa is shit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in the end, I mean, it's, it's not the same because the Bible is something else. We, you know, yeah. we pray okay. to it, we, you know... Yeah, so you, we put more weight on the authorship of the Bible because of the impact yes. and the kind of impact it's exactly. had on the world, right? Yes, yes, I mean, yes. Da Vinci has obviously had a huge impact on the world, Yeah, but it's a different kind of impact. He didn't ask people to emulate his actions. He didn't inspire an entire movement that has now... Two well, point something billion followers. Yeah, it's a different, uh, it's a different level. I mean, one may argue that he was the very first, you know, um, person whom I have done something to with science, and that there are more scientists now than believers, and maybe there is. But that's another. T- I'm gonna go on a tangent that's here. A, no, no. <laughs> We've already gone on quite a tangent. So let, yeah, let's bring us yeah. back to Paul's letters. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. yes, so they're important for Christians. Yeah, and, and and to quote Barton's book, some of the most evocative statements of Christianity come from these letters of contested authorship. Yeah. So one thing that I'm thinking now is, well, if the sentiment of the letters is genuinely Christian, you know, if Christians read them and they're like, yeah, this is this is my faith, this is Christianity, I, I recognize these ideas mm. in, in the letters. Why should it matter that they were not written by Paul? Right. Okay, um, I have. I can think quickly of two reasons. Okay, my first reasons is the content of those paintings, and not paintings. The contents of those letters, and the contents of those. Okay, that's right. So I have two reasons that I can think of very quick. The first one is some of the content of those letters did become foundational grounds for Christian belief. So, for instance, in number one, Timothy uh, 2.5, there is just one God, one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. Then on Ephesians um, 1.22.23, there is a quote that the church is the body of Christ. Mm. Now, take either of those statements out of the equation and you have a completely different religion. Right. A completely different understanding of Christianity, the reach of Christianity, etc., etc. My second reason is what? Paul really encapsulates for Christians. So what Paul saw, what he felt, and by, by this, uh, what I'm, what I mean is, this is a man who was blind, and then first he was killing Christians, then he was blind, then someone dropped mud in his eyes, and then his eyesight recovered. He recovered his eyesight. Um, if we do not think of the importance of this character, when you know, when if we do not think of the importance of this. Why do we not think that the Jesus Christ that appears in the Quran is not equally true? As in, you know, there is a Jesus Christ mentioned in the Quran. So if you're going to be lenient with who Paul was and 
whether if he wrote that or not, then maybe we should also consider that that Jesus of that text mm. might be true too. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're saying so 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 Paul is an authority. So his what he writes on Christian doctrine is authoritative because he experienced a miracle, right? It matters whether he wrote the letters because as one of the founders of Christian faith, he came into direct contact with um, the 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 power, the redemptive power of God and yes. Christ. I yeah, I do think yeah. Of course, the miracle gives him a more authoritative voice, but it's also you know it's it's what he encapsulates is the soul of the Christian believer you know someone who did nasty stuff like killing Christians and suddenly loses his sight and he's recovered and so on so he's a recipient of a miracle that he didn't really deserve yeah. in in net terms and in doing so he was chosen to be the living testament of the grace of God the you know mercy in the face of sin and that is why these letters are important because if he didn't write those. And in those letters, it says that there is one God and that the church is, you know, the mediator between God yeah, and Yeah, exactly, the, the body of Christ. Mm. Then, well, we're talking about very, very different stuff here. Yeah. And I think that's why it matters. Okay. So, yeah, I see why that's important. Okay, but, uh, um, okay, but what about the Gospels? What about the authors <laughs> of the Gospels? Okay, right. because we don't doubt the truthfulness of their testimony because... None of them was a recipient of a miracle, right? I mean, yeah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them was said to have received a miracle. Yeah. I mean, you know, been part of a miracle. Nevertheless, we don't know if the Gospel of of Luke, let's say, yeah. was actually written by a chap called Luke. Mm. And yet that's not a problem. I see what you mean. I, I, I can see why you, you think that, but... I read, I don't doubt the, the, the truthfulness behind the Gospels, personally, because... I would generally never know if these people existed. Like, it's impossible. I mean, I really, do. I don't know. Maybe it's not impossible, but... Uh, we I, would need more evidence. Yeah, we would need a lot of evidence. Yeah. And then people will question that evidence and so oh, on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's say that, you know, in the end, we will never know if these people existed. So we believe they did. And for me, that's enough. There are, there are no reasons to doubt their authorship. The reasons why I think it's different with Paul is precisely because there are reasons. Um when it comes to these letters. Right, okay. So there's like a distinction between having faith in the fact that yeah. the people who wrote the Gospels Ex wrote yeah. them yeah. and leaving room open for the fact that you have a reason to doubt whether or not Paul wrote Ephesians, Absolutely. for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay. act of faith, okay. act you know, yeah. Well, that seems a fair way to conclude the point. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, what about you then? What uh, do you find interesting? Right. Uh, but but, but what well, we need to talk about the aspect of um, how's it called divine inspiration. Oh yes, I thought that's very important because if I understood correctly from the book, uh, some people from the first five books of the Old Testament are said to be divinely inspired. However, the text itself isn't, uh, or at least it never claims to be divinely inspired. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, funnily enough, the only place in the New Here Testament. That explicitly claims scripture to be divinely inspired is Timothy two. Of course, it is. <laughs> so I mean, this is just really <laughs> yeah. to your point that it is. Yeah, if you're going to include Timothy two, which yeah. is a contested text, you're also you're yeah yeah, yeah. of course it is. Yeah, uh, I, I I'm actually quite baffled at this to be honest because I assume divine inspiration was mentioned in every single page of the Bible. Yeah, like. Every every sentence, and yeah. so God said. Well, it's like when you're in, in mass, you know. I've been to mass most of my life, and, and it's always this is the word of the Lord. I, right. And I assume it was. I, this just explains how I never read the Bible, <laughs> and maybe I should. Uh, but yeah, 
Right. Uh, so I was actually also surprised. Yeah. Because as you say, as you say in popular culture, it's always portrayed as if it were the word yeah, of it's God. Like, yeah. Like uh, as if it was said, it was yeah. the word of God. I was actually also surprised because you know I study philosophy. Yep. Divine inspiration is actually a common theme in some old texts. Ah, is it? Yeah. So right. If you were to look at the opening lines of Homer's Iliad Beautiful. or the Odyssey, sing to me, O muse, of the man of uh, twists and turns. Yeah, class. <laughs> yeah, that guy. I know this poem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- these poems begin with the invocation of the muses. You know, because the muses were sort of the connection between man and the gods, and the gods ah, would inspire okay. them to write this. Interesting. Which right. Inspire literally means God breathed. Mm. Like God breathed into you. Class. And. Uh, some nerdy stuff here. There's a lovely little dialogue by Plato okay. oh, yeah. called The Ion. It's like five pages. Uh, anyone can read it. How, how, okay. Which is all about truth and inspiration. And I highly recommend it. Interesting. But yeah, I was uh, I was surprised to read that it w- wasn't such a common theme. So normally, mm. divine inspiration is used as a way to support the truthfulness of the Bible. So, you know... So normally, divine inspiration is used to support the truthfulness of the Bible. Yeah, I mean, Barton doesn't like this. No, uh, he doesn't know. For two good reasons. I think he, first, what we just mentioned, right? That the text itself doesn't claim to be divine inspired. It's yeah. Simple, simply yeah. put. Secondly, uh, divine inspiration gets messy when you bring into contact with the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, inerrancy is just the idea that nothing in the Bible is wrong. So... Either you was, you know, either you think that the world was created five thousand years ago because the Bible was divine inspired and in the Bible is written and therefore it must be true, or you think that it was not created five thousand years ago, that the Genesis is plain wrong on this, in which case, you know, divine inspiration doesn't seem to work, doesn't yeah. make sense anymore. Right, yeah. And obviously there are all those sort of positions in between that yeah. read sort of parts of the Bible more allegorically. So the world was not literally created in six days, right. but something like there are six periods in creation. And, you know, these kind of allegorical readings will sometimes support themselves with scientific theories okay. and sort of a way to bridge the thing, the two together. Okay. So this is, you know, it's one way to try and save the Bible from inerrancy that doesn't rely on divine inspiration. But then we've often spoke about the sort of difficulty with allegory, right? Yeah. Like my allegory might not quite be your allegory, then... Mm complicated but barton's point is that divine inspiration is actually not necessary because we should stop thinking of the bible as sort of you know the be all and end all of christian faith right he makes a very compelling case for not thinking of the bible as the ultimate ground for faith and that in fact faith involves things that are outside the bible i know well i i can see quite a lot of people and i know them some of them personally that Mm. They identify themselves as Christians, but, you know, they don't really engage with the Bible at all. Um, okay. You can just see me now. Right, yeah. <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> um, but, um, you, you know. You own one. I, I, funnily enough, I do not. I, oh, so I have, the, <laughs> I'm a Catholic, so I have the New Testament. <laughs> uh, That's su- all you need. Suitably so. <laughs> I have an Ignatius, uh, St. Ignatius guide of, uh, which is a lovely, lovely um, New Testament version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know a catechism, but uh, okay. I don't know in a Bible, okay. and I should really get one. Interesting. But um, yeah, so what I wanted to say uh, here is that I see a lot of people, you know, not reading the Bible, but that you know, they they are Christians, and yeah. and John Barton here is qu- making quite a claim as well because 
there are things outside the Bible that are about faith, and it mm. doesn't mean the f- Bible is peripheral at all. It simply means that what it means to be Christian is not bounded by the Bible. Yeah. Um, I guess we haven't really spoken much about this, which is funny because it's the main claim of the book. Yeah. But it is a huge claim, and it, it really challenged my ideas about the role of the Bible in Christianity. I would often sort of try to think about things in faith purely in terms of the Bible. Yeah. And I think it's just essential reading for anyone eager to get to grips with the Bible's place in the modern world. Yeah. Because the way John Barton encourages us to read the Bible is much more historically minded than you would normally think to do. I I completely agree. I I mean, I felt, you know, exactly the same as uh, I identify myself as a Christian Catholic and reading this book was very, very challenging at times, especially yeah. when, you know, half of it is kind of in question. Uh, <laughs> not all of it. But, um, but you know, and, and we asked John Barton about that just before we close yes. this conversation. Uh, you know, we asked him whether if there is a conversation between academics and, and um, the religious authorities. Cap- yeah, yeah, authorities. And, and there isn't as much as you would want to, he said. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I personally think the... the it should be more debate about this stuff, and because you know we all get benefit from from all this in a way, I suppose not all of it, but yeah. Um, anyway, through, uh, <laughs> yeah. pleasantness, exactly. So anyway, I, I I agree with you. It was a fascinating book, certainly one that will stick with me for a very long time. Yeah, for me too. Well, I mean, uh, I think that's all we've got time for. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But thank you so much for bringing me. I, I probably think this is. I think this is the last uh, I'm, I'm being seen around in, in your first season. Hopefully not uh, the last time I'm uh, not talking ever, to no. you. Definitely not. Uh, not ever. But uh, it's been a pleasure. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great having you on. And it's been uh, especially interesting to discuss this this book with you. No, no, no. But, and also thank you to uh, John Barton. He was, he was really good. He was, very, he was, um, he was fantastic. Patient. Yes, very patient, I have to say. Uh, So uh, that's all from us today. This is the last episode of season one. In the meantime, I am... Should I? I'll bring the champagne in the meantime to say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm currently preparing episodes of season two, which will begin airing in October 22. Uh, Make sure to check out my my website, www.pleaseexpand.com to see a full list of upcoming episodes. There are some pretty good ones going to be discussing conquistadors with fernando cervantes america and iran with john gazvinian times witness with rosemary hill so some really exciting topics remember to follow me at please expand on twitter with just one e between the words and yeah if you enjoyed the episode please share it with your family and friends and yeah so i think that's it from me jay thank you once again for coming on thank you thank you very much and uh, bye-bye Bye-bye.